Hello, friend. Hello, friend, and welcome to this Mr. Robot podcast as we cover this fourth and final season. I'm Margaret, and I'm joined by our fearless co-host, Henry. Hey, Henry, how's it going? Uh, I'm doing well, Margaret. I feel a little bit messed with in terms of uh, what the show is doing to my brain and the perception of reality, but otherwise I'm doing well. We're here to talk about the second episode of the fourth season called Payment Required, and that's an actual... HTTP error code, which stands for basically if a client isn't paying, they get that message. That's like one reason you might get that message. In this episode, we saw a lot of action happen among our characters, Elliot and Darlene coming together. Dominique gets deeper into the Dark Army shenanigans, and Philip Price plays a central role. So I'm excited to talk about this episode. What were your overall impressions? My overall impressions of the show are pretty positive. I thought it could have gone in a direction where things got really surreal or kind of weird, but I think it did a good job of picking up from the last episode and laying out more tantalizing clues about the direction that it's going to go and some of the secrets or mysteries yet to be revealed. I thought it was pretty good in terms of setting up the continuing chess pieces, sort of to continue that metaphor that we were using from last week. And I thought so much of the dialogue was really good and memorable, so I wrote that down. And then a few of my other impressions included that I really am wondering what White Rose is building. Is this strange machine that is potentially under Washington Township? What is that? And then finally, I noticed that in this episode, and I guess this whole season, Elliot really doesn't talk to us anymore. I feel a little lonely, Henry. It's interesting to think about the implications of that. If you subscribe to the belief that nothing in the show is for by accident and that everything is sort of a clue or a symbol, it's interesting to think about what that means, especially in light of what we learn later on in the show about the presence of a third persona. Totally. And... It's amazing how it's integrated very subtly into this episode where, and even last week where Elliot just kind of switches off and one of his other personas takes over. He's kind of shutting down and turning away from the world, or at least us, the audience. The beginning montage that set up this whole episode was pretty remarkable in the ways they combined real news footage and fake events kind of seamlessly. From around the fall of the Berlin Wall, 1989, where he said the world was up for grab, and then it was interspersed with all of this backstory around White Rose and how White Rose came about and rose through prominence. And there were a lot of really cool deep fake videos integrated. How did you react to that backstory that Philip was presenting? I thought it was really interesting and it made me think about our reality and the things that we don't know about that happened post fall of the Cold War. I, you know, in real life with politics, you see 
a lot of people talking about the President of the United States and his possible ties to oligarchs or various nefarious figures or people with shady reputations. And it's amazing how small of a world it seems to be up at the top where these people often are in photos with each other, arms around each other, big smiles, and making a lot of money. So like a lot of conspiracy theories, it has a very strong ring of truth. Yeah, especially because during this montage, they cut to images of stuff like the Coke Industries logo, and they tied it to events in the first Gulf War and basically people vying for control of oil. And this is where we're first introduced to the Deus Group, the conveniently named Deus Group. They're like a mafia on a global scale, a giant, massive cabal, basically, that wants to connect everyone. That's the next big sort of get that White Rose is after. Did you did you buy into this storyline suddenly being introduced? Uh, I don't know about buying into the storyline per se, but I, I thought it was a, a really interesting uh, kind of additional angle or context because it rings so true to me. This idea that people are willingly handing over valuable things, valuable information, freedom about themselves because of bright, shiny objects, uh, aka the internet and other technologies. It's something that I think about in terms of uh, the fact that people are willing to give over so much and allow so much to happen in the name of movies, videos, porn. Uh, you know, a lot of these malware attacks happen through the porn vector because people are online clicking on stuff, uh, trying to find porn, not pay for it, and they're willing to put their security at risk uh, in order to do so. And, you know, these, the idea of a honeypot is often talked about in the show, and I think it's a, kind of a classic display of this. It's a very apt metaphor. And, you know, I was talking to a friend who works in the tech industry, and he told me that each of our medical data, just as individuals, has a value of at least $1,000 a month. Yeah, that would not surprise me, just in terms of the, the data uh, and its utility for training AI uh, for uh, experiments and other things. Like I often think about the value of the 23andMe data. The fact that they're convincing people to pay them money so that they can hand over their DNA in exchange for these kind of insights about where they came from and other things, like to, that to me is just amazing. It's a higher tech version of those personality tests that were all over Facebook just prior to the election in 2016 in some ways. Yeah, that's a really good comparison. You know, the fact that people were willing to give over so much data that was then later used by Cambridge Analytica uh, and other groups uh, in exchange for just the entertainment value of like, I want to know more about myself. So please tell me more about myself. And in exchange, I'll tell you a lot about me. So what do you think Minister Zhang's billion-dollar machine is the single purpose of Deus Group all along. Do you have any theories? I, I just took that more metaphorically in the sense that the purpose of the Deus Group was just to make money um, and just continuing to, to make money. I didn't necessarily think about it as a specific machine, per se. Did you? I'm wondering if it's sort of an, a Matrix-style alternate reality or... 
some kind of data center that's capable of controlling everyone's perceptions? I have no idea. All we know is this shipment is very important to White Rose, and it had better arrive in time for the holidays. Hear that, Amazon Prime? And what about the whole alliance of Philip Price, our favorite guy, and Mr. Robot and Elliot? You had some thoughts around that, didn't you? Yeah, I thought that that was not so surprising in the sense that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And this you know, idea that Philip Price... Uh, his enemy, or at least the person who killed his daughter, is White Rose, and Elliot has a score to settle with White Rose, so they seem to be on a collision course to helping each other. But the scene where Philip Price and Elliot are talking, the thing that kind of jumped out to me was Philip Price directly addressing Mr. Robot on his way out. Uh, And I'm trying to figure out what exactly that means. Did you catch that? I noticed, too, that Philip Price was speaking directly to Mr. Robot, and it was even joking about him being dead, and it was a rather remarkable scene. Yeah, so what do you think that that means? Uh, That's the fact that, has there been other characters that have directly addressed Mr. Robot? Like, has even Darlene directly addressed Mr. Robot? I feel like there have been times where it seems like Darlene is addressing Mr. Robot, but it could be like last week, but it could have been just Elliot projecting himself so he could check out. So it seemed a little more visceral with Price. So uh, there are definitely theories abounding on Reddit about this, huh? Yeah. uh, And to me, you know, I thought originally, okay, well, maybe Philip Price is the, the third persona, but then it doesn't make sense. And in, if you think about, the fact that he's a CEO of E-Corp, and if Elliot was Philip Price also, wouldn't people recognize him? Or wouldn't there be a lot more cases of mistaken identity? So then in that context, like, what exactly is going on where Philip Price is addressing Mr. Robot? Is there someone else in the room? Is there Tyrell? Like, what, what's going on? Yeah, something was weird about that. And it was interesting how he was so easily able to, I mean, relatively easy to convince Philip Price, or at least through the guise of Mr. Robot, that the only plan was for, you know, for Philip to really help eventually by quitting, I mean, later on in the show. I did like how Elliot's first thought to get the Cypress bank contacts and White Rose's contacts was to get their mobile phone numbers and hack their two-factor identification. There are stories all over Twitter, which I'm sure you've seen, about people who've lost access to their devices because they set up two-factor identification through their phones and that's been not advised i don't know if you've seen those stories actually i was just reading an article about this today and how you can either compromise a phone number through certain technical methods or through social hacking Um, a lot of times Hacker, social hackers are able to convince phone company personnel to uh, issue a new SIM card for a phone number, which then allows them to receive the SMS messages intended for the target. So it's a very plausible scenario and one that is increasingly becoming the weakest link of our current security system. In fact, the article that I was reading said that A lot of security experts would rather their social security number get leaked rather than their phone number. And it makes you really think about 
whether or not we should be giving out our phone number if we're actually going to use that same phone number for two-factor authentication. Yeah, I think the best way to go, which it's probably a little more work, but to use some kind of third-party service that lets you store and track your passwords independently because it is not okay to really use your phone anymore. I still use it for a few passwords. I probably shouldn't say that, but nothing, you know, major. But I try not to ever use my phone for two-factor. Little advice there, folks. Um, Also, you can use things like Google Authenticator. 1Password has the ability to also uh, support one-time codes. So you can often use something like that to generate these one-time codes that uh, are used for two-factor instead of the phone number. And that seems to be a little bit more secure. Yep. And moving right along, it turns out that Elliot and Darlene's mother has died, and then all of the hilarity ensues. It's it's interesting what happens when someone you have ambivalent feelings about passes away, right? Because it sort of ends the story. Like before someone passes, there's always a chance that there could be reconciliation or something else happens. But... Once someone's gone, it's sort of, you know, that's the end of the story. And if you haven't reached any sort of resolution, then the story is kind of left unfinished. It seems you can see a lot of that sort of playing out with Darlene Elliott uh, and their reaction to their mom's death. Yes, it reminded me of the time I went to a wake when I lived in New York City for someone I barely knew. He was somebody's father. And everyone who went up to eulogize this person had nothing nice to say. It was the most remarkable thing I've ever seen. Not a single person had a nice word to say about this guy who was lying nearby in a coffin. What a funeral. It was pretty intense experience I'll never forget, especially because I didn't know anyone. So it reminded me of this scene a little bit. But Darlene and Elliot find a Walkman and a safety deposit box slip, which turns out to be kind of a red herring. Any significance to the Walkman besides that cassette tape, do you think? Well, cassette tapes are just cool now, right? Uh, <laughs> that's, that's what I'm increasingly hearing is that cassettes are, cassette tapes are making a comeback, which to me sort of proves that nostalgia sometimes overrides uh, common sense because I grew up with cassettes. They weren't that great. Like the, they had a lot of hissing. You had to wait for songs. Like I thought I was so happy when CDs came along, aside from the skipping factor. Uh, but I can understand the kind of nostalgia. Um, I really didn't know what to make of the Walkman. I think it's a way for the writers to get us thinking about earlier in the show and kind of connecting the dots with you know the backstory of Elliot's family life, which we spent a long a lot of time in seasons. I feel like seasons two and three, kind of learning backstory and kind of going into surreal land, uncovering Elliot's past with his family. Yeah. When I saw Darlene wearing her mother's coat, I thought to myself, don't do that. You're going to turn into your mother. It made me worry for her as sort of a symbolic thing. It was also a little bit morbid. What did you think about Dominique and her account of what Santiago was up to with Agent Horton? Do you think she handled herself well? Oh, that I, I loved the the Dominique story in in this episode. I thought they did a really good job of kind of building up the 
the unease and tension and just kind of showing the malevolence of the dark army and how they're they're continuing to push her and push her. Uh, I get the feeling that she's heading towards a certain breaking point where she decides that she's going to go after them. And I feel like that's what we're being set up for. Yeah, because she's fundamentally an honest and ethical person and probably a lot more so than other folks that they the Dark Army has turned. So I can't imagine she'll stay subordinate for long. But I did love the fact that Janice's taxidermy store is called Le Mort Heureux. I practice that. I don't really speak French, which translates, as you probably know, to A Happy Death, which is a reference to a novel by Albert Camus about, and I took this from Wikipedia because I only ever read The Stranger. It's a book about the will to happiness, the conscious creation of one's happiness and the need of time and money to do so. So isn't that hilarious? (laughs) Interesting. There are so many kind of details to kind of bring certain concepts or ideas to mind. And I'm never quite sure if they're red herrings or, uh, you know, if by the end of the season, everything will somehow magically fit together. I hear you. I think the taxidermist store is one of my favorite settings in the whole series. And I was worried when Dominique was elaborating and said she was 99.9% sure. My ears did kind of perk up when I heard that. That's just because you're a CEO, Margaret, and you don't like to hear people say 99% sure. <laughs> <laughs> Only 100% for me. <laughs> Janice also loves using those 100% emojis and the text messages to Dominique, warning her that she only wants a full accomplishment. I thought that was a hilarious touch as well. I, I'm always impressed when people can find uses for uh, lesser used emojis. Uh, I once had a, a competition with a friend to see how many emojis that we could work into our, our discussions, uh, especially the obscure ones. And some of them are hard. But you wonder why they're still around. <laughs> I know. I know. It's just this legacy thing. And then the death of Darlene and Elliot's mom, there were a lot of scenes around that centering around cremation cardboard coffin and the cheapest urn. So more of that sort of emotional or non-emotional outpouring, the snowman on the subway, which was a very New York sort of vignette. And Mr. McGuire, Dominique interrogating Mr. McGuire, did you get anything out of that? Uh, You know, the one thing that jumped out to me was his Irish accent. Uh, I was trying to figure out if that's somehow a clue or, you know, irrelevant outside of just his character, but I didn't really come to any conclusions. What about yourself? The only thing I thought of, and maybe this is because I have recently watched El Camino, which was, again, I know I mentioned it last week, brilliant. I noticed Mr. McGuire specializes in making people disappear and assume new identities, and I did wonder if that was going to come into play later on. That's right. And it reminds me of something that I thought about in terms of what uh, White Rose's shipment could be, Uh, and maybe it's a person. Maybe uh, we're talking about human trafficking and 
the shipment and the delivery is really about a person or a child uh, and not necessarily a thing. Just an idea. Oh, I like that. I think that's very possible. And also prescient. B.D. Wong posted this really cool video where a bunch of actors were being quizzed about their knowledge of the show versus real world events that took place. They were all variously quizzed whether Mr. Robot predicted a news event or whether it happened first. And one of them was the Ashley Madison hack. And it turned out that Mr. Robot predicted that a month before it happened in the series. That's really cool. I mean, you can just imagine that there are certain uh, honeypots of data that are really tempting. Like when you think about Grindr and why the U.S. government blocked a Chinese entity from acquiring Grinder, you can imagine the data about who's gay, who's hooking up, like that could be really, really useful, especially in places where homosexuality is viewed as a sin or a crime. Yeah. Wow, we're really entering a new phase of, uh, I mean, Mr. Robot once again, you know, the opening Philip Price montage monologue about how the world is increasingly connected and we're just this web literally we're in the web of data and information and social credit potentially at least in parts of the world and then there was poor agent horton he was just doing his job and then he was conveniently knocked off all with the intent of course of terrorizing dominique and letting her know the dark army is serious i wasn't expecting that were you that surprised me but i think it goes in the direction of pushing Dominic to the edge, uh, where eventually she decides that she's going to fight back uh, and not take it anymore, or at least die in the attempt. I think this is what these actions are sort of leading up to. Yeah, and I have to admit, this is the part of the story where White Rose and Philip Price come together and they realize they have to call in all of the principals of the Deus group to appoint a new CEO. That was really straining my credulity a little bit. How about you? Yeah, it, it seems a little bit odd to me that all these super wealthy, powerful people can't use video conference to come to an agreement, <laughs> <laughs> right? Like somehow, like, and that they've like engineered this corporate structure so that they all have to be in the same place uh, to do it. I would understand maybe, uh, no, I wouldn't understand. It just seems like a very silly thing. Like it, it seems to fall into the classic trap that a lot of uh, adventure stories that have a villain fall into where they have this very powerful, very smart villain, but they yet they do something incredibly stupid that allows for them to be vulnerable and exposed. Like the Death Star <laughs> that has this magical spot that somehow if you, hit it just right the whole thing blows up like why 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 you know but you see this over and over again where the writers somehow create this flaw that allows them to have uh, vulnerability yeah there's something that doesn't really sync up with the idea that the invisible hand needs to gather inside of a conference room on new year's <laughs> But this goes all the way back, I guess, to Achilles, right? This idea that somehow this person's invulnerable except for the spot where the person was holding him when they dipped him into the water. Like, why not flip him over and dip him in again? <laughs> why, 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 is, why that one spot? Totally. And, you know, then Philip calls 
Elliot and says, I've played my hand and now we have to wait, which was one of my favorite lines from the show. It was pretty cool. I, I liked it because it reminds me of how we make video games and video game designs where you set up these little machines or wind up toys like engagement loops or game design loops and you just kind of let them run. And that's what that reminded me of a little bit. Yeah, it's kind of like game, like uh, maybe tower defense games, right? Where you kind of set things up and then mm-hmm. the, the enemies kind of flow through a path or channel and you kind of see how your setup does. I also really like the nice touch that Darlene was able to hack into Signal's API. We know Signal is a pretty secure messaging app that a lot of journalists use, for example, for communicating. You can also make secure calls via Signal. But Darlene figured out how to get into that API so that she and Elliot would know where they were all the time because she's in. She confessed everything to Elliot. I think that might help with her journey to some kind of healing. I don't know if she can ever recover from her murderous ways, though, as a character. I mean, maybe, you know, her redemption is in some kind of a death. What do you think about that? I think she's going to have to confess the murder to Dominic at some point. Or she's going to tell Dominic at some point that she was the one who did it. Because Dominic was investigating that. And given the direction that Dominic's character is going and Darlene's character is going... I can see the two of them uh, together at some point and this coming up. Yep, yep. And then, of course, the end scene was the big reveal. I thought there were some interesting things to note about this child spinning around in a chair overlooking the Manhattan skyline. Clearly, we're meant to think this is, what, another version of Elliot? Is he the package? I don't think so. I think this is... I, this is young Elliot talking to his mother, right? And mm-hmm. we saw young Elliot, his mother, and Mr. Robot standing over Elliot when he was dying, right? So I think these are supposed to represent like personas or parts of his mind and the kind of internal workings of his mind and these different personas. And the two of them are talking about a third persona that we haven't seen so that there's Elliot, Mr. Robot and a third and talking over when, you know, this will come out. Um, and the room that they're in, I believe is the room that Elliot was offered the job in the beginning of the series where he's being interviewed by Tyrell. So the fact that they wind up back there to me is interesting. It makes me wonder if Tyrell is actually the third persona, um, Although that doesn't seem like it would be true just because they seem to be, uh, you know, he seems to be a physical person that people really recognize distinct from Elliot. So I don't know. I, I'm, I'm firmly where uh, the writers want me, which is like in a hall of mirrors. Yeah, so I've previously wondered as well whether Tyrell was uh, one of the personas, I think especially in season, maybe season two. Do you have any predictions or anything that you want to talk about to wrap up your impressions of 402, Payment Required, Season 4, Episode 2 of Mr. Robot? Yeah, a couple things, actually. Like, one, I think this show, this particular episode resonated with me because it it touched on a lot of things that I'm currently thinking about and that are contemporaneous, like uh, the fact that this interconnected world means that we're, in some places, you might lose freedom, or in some places, you might lose prosperity, 
because it's kind of like connecting two bodies of water, right? Like the water tends to flow to an equilibrium between the two levels. And the fact that once we're all interconnected, things like free speech, things like standards of living, they all kind of get adjusted where you start to see the United States and looking more like the developing world and with the homelessness and the tent camps and things like this uh, that didn't exist before. And as a condition, as a consequence of the free trade policies, this interconnectivity that we have or what's going on right now with China and free speech and American corporations like Blizzard, the NBA, censoring themselves in ways that would have been really difficult to imagine 20 years ago because they're afraid of losing business in China. So I think that's one thing that I thought was really contemporary and really relevant. What about you? Similar things. I mean, LeBron James speaking out today to sort of smooth things over with China because they don't want to lose business there. Probably unrelated, but someone I know mostly through Facebook happened to be at Hong Kong airport today and she posted a photo of a group of NBA players who were also at the airport when she was. She didn't know which team or teams they represented. She posted on Facebook and said, you know, which NBA stars are these? And I thought that was pretty timely and relevant given all of the hoopla around NBA players and censorship and China. And it makes me think of this theorist, Edward Said. He wrote a lot about cultural absorption in the process of colonialism when different nations or geographical regions become connected and there are potentially unequal relationships at play over the course of history. And that ebbs and flows. Because culture is always evolving. Both cultures absorb aspects and elements of the other culture. Because we're so globally connected, it's happening before our eyes so rapidly. As you can tell, I totally resonate with that whole idea. Do you want to play What Would You Rather? Oh, before, oh, before we do that, I have one more prediction. Oh, Margaret. awesome. So, you know, we've, we've had 401, we've had 402, uh, and 403 is a forbidden error code, right? And so just kind of thinking ahead about what's going to come next, I'm trying to think about like the 403 error that we're going to see uh, in the next episode and the, some, the metaphor symbology of that. Like, what is the forbidden error that you think will appear? Hmm, that's really great. Forbidden error. Oh gosh, the first thing that crossed my mind was crossing the dais group or white rose but who knows what do you think um i think it could be the forbidden error so i'm looking at google and like what a 403 is and it means like it's a status code that means that accessing the page or resource you're trying to reach is absolutely forbidden so this idea that you're trying to access something that's forbidden you know you have the cypress bank account uh which elliot's trying to access so that's one possibility you have, uh, you you have also the um, the personas that Elliot has, and the fact that there is this kind of third persona that seems to be off limits and is kind of playing around the edges. Uh, can you think of any others? Hmm, I probably need to think about it more, but that's a pretty good listing there, and really insightful as well. 
Yeah, so let's see. Uh, I'm, I'm curious to see what the forbidden error that's going to get thrown up in the next episode is going to be about. Yeah, so it, it definitely won't be hugging Angela's ballerina shoes. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, now I'm ready for what would you rather. I have a really good one this week, I think. Okay, go for okay, it. Okay, what would you rather... New York City subway or San Francisco BART transportation system? Uh, in both in their current state, I would take BART just because BART is cleaner in my experience than the New York City subway. Uh, I was in New York about a year ago and I was really appalled at the, the state of the stations and the trains even for you know a world-class city. It's, it's hard to find a world-class city that has such a, a, a dirty uh, subway system as, as New York City. Yes, even though New York City does have Pizza Rat, and we do have to appreciate Pizza Rat on some level, I would also choose the BART, even though every time I'm on the BART, it just smells like weed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what would you say the New York City subway smells like? Oh, gosh. It, it depends on where, which part of the subway you are. Sometimes it smells like garbage. Sometimes it smells like people or just years and years and years of layered dirt. Um, yeah, the smells aren't really often that nice, especially in the summer. <laughs> yeah, uh, something that I can recall is uh, the relief that I'd feel whenever I got into an air-conditioned train in the New York subway during the summer, just going from that sweltering, muggy heat to like cool car air conditioning. That was amazing. Or when you go into the totally empty car on the train and then you find out it's because it's not air-conditioned and it's like 90 degrees. And <laughs> But... Uh, it- Exactly. I feel like that's a metaphor for life. Like, beware something that looks too good. There's a reason for it. But I will say on the SF BART, one time I saw a person pull out a probably like a five or seven pound slab of raw meat and just start eating it, you know, like taking big chunks out of it like a zombie. So I did see that once. But anyway. That, that sounds pretty scary. I think I would move cars. If I, if I saw that It was happening. shocking. It looked like something out of a National Geographic channel, you know, animal versus predator or something. It was a crowded train, too, and everyone looked really shocked. Do you have one for me? Yeah, what would you rather see in concert, Dylan or Van Morrison? <laughs> so, you know, I went to see Bob Dylan yesterday at Stanford, and I think it would be Dylan because, you know, I was reminded he's been around since the Beat Poets. He's a remarkable artist. There was a phase in my life where I listened to some of his music pretty like this one summer, he did play Highway 61, which is one of my favorites of his songs. So definitely Bob Dylan. How about you? Definitely Dylan. Uh, Dylan is one of like my kind of musical loves, I would say. Uh, and I, I learned a lot about American music through learning about Bob Dylan and the role that he played uh, in modern music in the 60s, especially in the 60s and 70s. But it was something that, for me, with parents that didn't grow up listening to Bob Dylan, my parents grew up overseas. They didn't have any idea who Bob Dylan was. 
it was something that I kind of came to obliquely in the sense that I didn't have any exposure to him really growing up aside from pop culture or other things. It was only once I started learning more about music and reading more about music history that I discovered him and I tried to get past my initial shock at the sound of his voice <laughs> and appreciate the other like amazing things about his his work. Yeah, I, I agree. He's an icon and he had such an influence on music for so many generations. And, and I was really happy to be able to see him in a, in a really great amphitheater outdoor setting with the tightest security I think I've ever experienced, which, you know, probably makes sense in this day and age. But oh, that's interesting that you have such a fondness for him. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, I have like, you know, I, I have a book of all of his lyrics. Uh, I have uh, a couple of other books. I've watched documentaries like the D.A. Pennybaker, Don't Look Back. Uh, I learned how to play guitar by playing a lot of his songs. So he's someone that's uh, been a really kind of important figure in my life. I think it's pretty amazing that he's still alive. Out of all of his contemporaries and all the other people, I think it's amazing that he's still making and performing music. I, I saw him at the Bill Graham civic auditorium and not one of his better shows because the acoustics are bad so if anyone's listening to this don't see dylan in a place where the acoustics are bad it's going to be really really terrible see him in a place where the acoustics were good uh how are the acoustics at your show um you know i thought it's funny that you ask he had a pretty full band with him and which included a violin player and a stand-up bass and you know uh my friends described it as more of a bluesy version of dylan and the first part was more mellow and the second part was more raucous of course i prefer the raucous part but uh sometimes in the early part of the show i felt like the audio mixing uh, speaking of audio issues could have been a little bit, um, the band could have been turned down a little bit because it, it sometimes drowned out his voice. And his voice warmed up towards the end. But, you know, I have massive respect for him. And I also was remarking to friends about how he's outlived so many people who, you know, didn't even make it past the 27th year of their lives, which is almost a cliche, but a lot of 20th century musicians did die at that age. He was very good. I was really grateful he played Highway 61 because it, it was one song that I do like a lot. <laughs> uh, are you familiar with the group Traveling Wilburys? Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, if you think about who was in that band, a lot of people are dead except for Dylan, right? Tom Petty was in the uh, Traveling Wilburys, Roy Orbison, uh, George Harrison. Um, I, I know I'm a couple, forgetting a couple others, but I'm trying to think of an, a traveling Wilbury besides Dylan that's still alive. Yeah, yeah. And he was, he was really holding his own. You know, uh, my friends had recently seen Paul Simon, and I saw him a few years ago, and I heard he played this last time when he came through the Bay Area. He played for hours, and I've seen him perform, and he's very... I don't know if he's the same age as Dylan, but it's true. You really have to um, cherish these these artists who have given so much uh, to our, you know, our musical you know, history and contemporary music in a lot of ways. Well, they become part of our, our memory of a time and place, and they become so evocative that they start to represent something more than just the music. And I think Mr. Robot actually does a really good job with the music that he uses. Yeah, even, even the creepy 
music that's composed for the show and the musical tracks they choose. I think one of the the Christmas songs was a new was it a New Order song they were playing? I read that somewhere. I love I love the musical soundtracks for the show. It's it really just adds so much. That and El Camino, again, the musical choices for that film were were excellent as well. I haven't seen it yet, so uh, I'll have to put El Camino on my on my list. The writing is so good. And another one of my favorites is Lodge 49, which hardly anyone watches and I've watched both seasons and I hope it comes back for a third. So lots of good TV, I guess. Lots of good TV. Not all of them uh you know, deserve a podcast uh or we don't have time for all of them, but yeah, lots of good TV. Well, it's been great chatting with you, Henry. Thank you so much for talking about Mr. Robot with me. I hope you have a great week. You too, Margaret. Thanks.